Welcome to the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. So if you have not been with us for the past couple of weeks and are wondering what's going on with this suspended book over here, let me give, us, give you a quick introduction and a review for the rest of us. Over the last few weeks during the season of Advent, we have been looking at the big book of the Bible, the epic story of Scripture, and we've seen that as we open the pages, we find a lot of stories in there. And at first glance, it may seem that these are short stories that maybe make up a collection, but upon further and deeper investigation, we see actually the whole book, the whole epic of Scripture tells one big story tells the one big story of God and God's love and God's plans for the people God created. It tells the epic story of God's love and redemption. And we see early on in the story that the people God created needed redemption. We saw in chapter one of our story, in the setting of the Garden of Eden, that the people God created decided to do things their own way not to follow in the way that God had instructed them to walk, but to do things their own way. And that scene of Eden is represented by the leaves we see spilling out of the pages. And then last week, Pastor Allie introduced us chapter two, promise. God's promise to take one family, one couple, Abraham and Sarah, and to make from that one couple a nation a nation that he promised would, would not rule over the world, but would bless the entire world. And so as people who we ourselves have gotten in on that promise, we, we represent that promise to the whole earth through these, the globes you see suspended there. And today we will open the story, open the epic to chapter three, instruction. And we'll see that when God fulfilled his promise and made a nation from this one family, this old couple, Abraham and, and Sarah, this old couple who had given themselves up for any hope of having children of their own, God took them and made a nation out of them. But then he didn't leave them on their own. God stayed with them, speaking to them, guiding them and giving them words of instruction. He stayed close and he told his people how they could stay close to him. So before we dig in deeper this morning, let's go to God in prayer again. Loving, present God, God with us, this morning we trust that you are indeed here with us and that you are for us, that you long to speak to us. Open the ears of our hearts, God. Open our minds. Help us to attend well to your word to us this morning. Amen. Have you ever tried to do something really difficult by by reading about it? By opening a book and trying to figure out how to master a skill? Or reading an instruction manual and trying to figure out how to just become an expert in something? It's really hard. That's a really tough path to gaining uh, mastery and skill in anything. We know that the written word is helpful, whether it's a book with, with pages and ink, or uh, it's an ebook or a website. We can learn a lot from reading, 
You can get a lot of tips, a lot of information, a lot of background. Reading can help us. But there's really no substitute for trying things out in real space, real time, having an opportunity to try things for ourselves. And there's really no substitute for learning from an expert who can guide us. Imagine the difference between reading about fly fishing techniques and spending a day in the river, on the waters with a master fly fishing guide in Wyoming. It's a very, very different situation. I have friends who have had this kind of opportunity for immersive training, kind of a, a mini mentorship, apprenticeship, spending time on the water, learning from someone who knows how to do it well. And they've said, even though they've been fishing for years themselves, that one day under the tutelage of a master has changed how they approach fishing for salmon or trout. Or imagine everything you can learn if you were to sit down with a driver's license uh, instruction manual in one hand and a car operating manual in the other hand and try to learn about driving. You can learn some things, but we know we really learn the skill of driving by spending those hours behind the wheel, sometimes accompanied by a probably white-knuckled driving instructor. (laughs) We can learn a lot from a book, but any sort of real-world competence or mastery comes, comes from doing, comes from trying things out ourselves. As we look at the epic story of Scripture, we encounter a God who is committed to guiding the people that God lovingly created, guiding them toward growing competence and joy and living the kind of life God designed for his people to live. God spoke to Adam and Eve words of instruction, invitation, and warning. God spoke to Abraham words of promise and instruction. He spoke to Moses from the midst of a burning bush, words of instruction and comfort and challenge and commissioning. And when he spoke to the nation of Israel, the nation that had come into being through the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and Sarah, God gave them a book. Now you might be saying, hey, hey, wait a minute, Ben, you just said like written instruction is only of limited value and help, Uh, but stay with me. Let's see together how this epic saga unfolds. The people of God found themselves rescued from bondage and slavery in Egypt. But as they came out of that experience, they found themselves in another situation, and that was wandering in the desert, a land they did not know. And their only instruction was to to follow God's presence that was manifest to them in a pillar of cloud that, that moved or stayed by day and a pillar of fire by night. That was their one instruction, when the, when the cloud or fire remains stationary, they should stay, and they should break camp when the pillar moved. And one day, we're told, during these desert wanderings, God called Moses, the leader of the people, up onto Mount Sinai so that God might speak to Moses and deliver to Moses and through Moses instructions, instructions that would become the written book of the law that the people were to live by. Now, this was a book that Adam and Eve would never have needed had they chosen to obey God's simple instruction in the garden. But now that all humankind found itself in need of redemption 
and no longer naturally in close communion with their creator God, God reached out with words of instruction, words of life, and he gave his people a sort of user's manual for life, but, but it was so much more. Scripture calls these instructions the law. We refer to them as the Old Testament law. And if we think about them in those terms, our first response might be to think of them as something kind of, kind of onerous, something weighing on the people. Usually if we think of a bunch of laws and rules and regulations that are presented to us, we might not think that that's a lot of fun. And sure enough, the people of God heard all this instruction and often struggled to live up to it. It was difficult. It was a challenge. We think of the law maybe as things we'd rather not do, but we're somehow supposed to live up to. But it's important that we not lose sight of the heart of God as it's revealed in the instructions of God that made up the law of God. Dr. Sandra, Dr. Sandra Richter, in her book, The Epic of Eden, it's a book I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, uh, as a resource that could be really helpful for us to gain an understanding of the scope, the epic of Scripture, as telling us one story of God's redemptive plan. In her book, Dr. Richter describes the law delivered through Moses to God's people this way. She says, in its place in redemptive history, the law served to sketch the profile of God to a fallen race who no longer had any idea who God was or what he defined as good. Because of the Mosaic law, the Israelites learned that their God, Yahweh, was not like other so-called gods of the ancient Near East. This God abhorred human sacrifice, self-mutilation, and temple prostitution. This God was immune to magic and competed with no one. Unlike the other deities they heard about who were embedded in the created order, Yahweh was independent of his creation. He did not need humanity to feed or clothe him, nor was he impressed or swayed by the construction of fancy temples. This God was different, and what he expected of his people was different as well. This is what the Mosaic Law brought into focus in Israel's world. And I love that description of the law as a sketch, a portrait of a God whom the people had forgotten about had ceased to know. This law, God's written instructions to God's people, was not a car owner's manual. For one thing, the law made it clear that the people did not own God. Unlike the people around them, uh, God's people did not cart their God around like an idol, like a little thing that, that they moved and chose where to place. God's people belonged to God. They were his flock, and he was their shepherd. For another thing, a car, owner, car owner's manual simply describes the functions, operation, and maintenance of that particular vehicle. It doesn't spend a lot of time describing why and how that car is different than all the others. But as Dr. Richter describes the law, it's clear that in this book, God takes the time to explain that he is not like other so-called gods. God's people find themselves in the desert looking at other people worshiping in their gods, seeing examples of how deities might be worshiped. And God makes it clear in writing through Moses that that's not what he intends for his people. 
He makes it clear that he, Yahweh, is different and his people are called to be different. We're told that God himself wrote on the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And so with this written law, these written instructions, the people of God lived out their lives in the place that God had led them to, and they lived with decidedly mixed results when it came to obeying the law. More often than not, the people needed a lot of help. There were plenty of times the people followed in the footsteps of Adam and Eve, deliberately disobeying what God had told them, even though there was no excuse that God hadn't made himself clear. And even when the people tried, they tried with all their hearts to follow, to obey, it was tough. And the people needed instruction. They needed mentors. They needed guidance. They needed master teachers. And this is where in the epic saga of God's and God, God and God's redemptive plans, the prophets come into focus. God specifically sent chosen individuals to speak for God to the people of God. Through the prophets, God spoke words of comfort and correction, guidance and explanation. Through the, through the prophets, God reminded the people who God was and who God was not. He spoke to them of God's heart for them. God reminded the people through his prophets that he was with them, that he stood for them. And he reminded them as God's created, called, and beloved people that they, they were called to live a different life than what they often saw around them. God's prophets called people out when the people got off track. And God's prophets put their finger on the hearts of those who maybe were doing okay in terms of living out the letter of the law, but had missed the point, had missed out on the heart of God revealed through the written law. Prophets like Elijah and Elisha modeled faithful, if imperfect, examples of what it means to obey God's word. And they spoke on behalf of God, both to God's people and to those who stood opposed to God. These prophets stood up against those who opposed God and God's people. They championed God's people. But they also stood up in the face of disobedience among God's people. They didn't hold back letting God's people know the consequences of what would happen if people turned from the way of God. And prophet after prophet sent by God warned against the implications, the costs of people going their own way, of people continuing the tragedy of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and turning against God. We saw that Adam and Eve had been cast out of the garden as a result of their disobedience. And these prophets warn God's people, you'll be sent away from the land you've been given unless you obey and faithfully follow God. And sure enough, the people found themselves exiled from the land, sent out, barred from return, living as captives in a land not their own. Jerusalem fell, and it seemed that all hope was lost. And yet, even in those days of exile, God spoke through his prophets, saying, you are still my people. 
I am still your God. I am still with you and for you. Turn to me. Turn to me and follow me. Jeremiah was a prophet who spoke to the people's dire condition as they found themselves captives in in Babylon. Jeremiah was a prophet who predicted the exile and the fall of, of Jerusalem and also explained what would happen in exile and following the days of exile. He didn't pull any punches in terms of portraying the ugliness of the people's disobedience or the beauty of God's faithfulness. Jeremiah pointed to the epic saga unfolding before the eyes of the people. He shined a spotlight on a God who is a God of judgment and redemption, a God who becomes angry, but whose heart is full of compassion and love for his people. Jeremiah reveals God as a God who covenants, who loves to make promises and keep those promises. He spoke to God's people words of instruction that illuminated God's law, its depth, and its textures. And Jeremiah pointed ahead to a day when God's promises and instructions would would no longer be merely the written word or even words spoken from mouth to ear. Jeremiah pointed to a day when the God's instruction would be inscribed on the very hearts of God's people. In Jeremiah 31, we read, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them from by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Jeremiah presents this portrait of a God who is a covenanting, promise-making God. God made promises and clarified expectations with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God covenanted again with Abraham and once again through Moses. And through Jeremiah, God makes it clear that every time God makes a covenant. God's people do not hold up their end. They break it. They're not faithful, even though God is faithful to hold up his promises. They broke my covenant, God says, even though I was a husband to them. A husband. Not a demanding overlord. Not some distant manager or overseer. But a husband. A spouse one who honors his bride, one who seeks to to serve and protect and love her. It's powerful language he uses. And God declares that once again, even though the people have broken their end of the covenant again and again, God will make a covenant with them, with the people he loves. But this time he says the covenant won't come through the written words of a book. 
They won't even come through spoken words as one person instructs another in the ways of God. This time, God says, my instruction will be placed in people's minds and written on their hearts. God's prophets spoke of a time beyond God's prophets when prophecy would would pass. It spoke of a time when by the Holy Spirit, God would speak directly to the minds and hearts of God's people. It's not that the law and the prophets would be done away with, but there was something new that was coming. God would enable his people to live more faithfully by a power not their own, by his own power at work within them. We see in this epic that God continues to move and to speak more closely and closely to his people. God sent the written word, the law, to his people to instruct and guide them. God sent prophets to speak on his behalf. And now God promises not to send word, but to become word. God sends and sends and sends, and then one day arrives himself. And this is, our pro- this is the promise of Advent. That Jesus came as the word, not written or spoken, but the word incarnate, lived in flesh and blood. The prophets spoke of him. The prophets declared that this was always part of God's plan, that Emmanuel would come, God with us. Promised in the days of old, expected, hoped for, looked for for centuries. Jesus came and showed us what it looks like for a human being to actually faithfully live out the instructions of God and to live them according to the heart of God. Jesus came and lived and walked among us, reminding us we are still the people of God, living in the place of God and dwelling in the presence of God. God sends us the Holy Spirit in fulfillment of God's promises to place his word in our minds, to write it on our hearts. These inscribed hearts become part of the epic story spilling out of the pages of God's word to us. As the prophets look to Christ's first coming, we as people of Advent anticipate, await, and even celebrate his return. His return when the epic saga of God's faithfulness and love turns another page, continues to tell the story, a story that in so many ways remains the same, a story of God with us. Would you pray with me? Loving and speaking and present God, we thank you that you are here We thank you for speaking to us. We thank you for your faithfulness and reminding us who we are and who you are. Thank you for reminding the gifts that you give us and reminding us of what you have asked of us. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would indeed speak to our hearts, would guide and etch our hearts and minds so we might become more fully aware of your presence with us more fully and faithfully and joyfully responsive to your presence, to your instruction. Keep our eyes on Jesus as we ask all this in his name. 
Amen.